two wizards. Two wizards? Two wizards. Two wizards. Uh, well, hey, Mark, I, I guess, I mean, by my reckoning, I think this is our first actual recorded uh, episode of 2024. So happy 2024. Happy New Year, man. Yeah, yeah. Happy New Year to you, Josh. Happy 2024, listeners. Um, yeah, all those sweet, sweet days of having a backlog are <laughs> <laughs> now gone and burnt yes, through. Right, and, yeah. Oh, God, New Year, new wizards, and oh, baby. that's all right. Glad yeah. to be here. It is, no, yeah, very glad to be here. And, you know, I, I recall one of our conversations, you know, doing the whole, like, yeah, do we do much of the resolution thing? Do we try to aim for self-improvement, self-betterment? Um, and both of us were like, I mean, sort of, yeah. But at least speaking for myself, I'm I'm feeling that, you know, I, I that that light at the end of the tunnel that is dissertation it's it's just growing brighter and brighter had i, I got i got back recently from a from a from a conference talking with other like classics people so that was pretty cool nice um, nice i even did the thing i even did the thing like okay uh, i keep telling people that i'm going to start working out again so i did it i got a workout in uh, and feeling hey, okay good so man. far yeah feeling okay so far um and Tune in next week to see how I'm actually doing <laughs> after that. <laughs> but um, but yeah, man, I, I I anticipate good times ahead, both for me and for you, and for this podcast, the Two Wizards Podcast. Welcome everybody. Uh, Happy New Year to you. Uh, hopefully, I mean, if you're doing the resolution thing, good on you. Keep at it. And if you're not, that's okay. That's all right too. But my name is Josh, and I'm a wizard. And my name is Mark, and I'm a wizard. Welcome back, Josh. Happy New Year to you. I'm glad you got back safe from your conference. Um, where yeah. did you say this one was at? Oh yeah, so this was in Chicago. Um, in Chicago, okay. And so, so mm-hmm. I might have assumed that you pulled the like, you know, when you studied abroad in Greece, you went down to the Mediterranean and you drank some seawater, and then when you were in Rome with your Mrs. Wizard, what was it, Ostia? You went down mm-hmm. to the beach and you drank some seawater. Yeah, I drank some more um, seawater. Yep. So did you go down to the Chicago River and like <laughs> take a nip? Just, you know, for you know, our, consistency. Our, our hotel was right there. Um, and darn it, my schedule, if, if my schedule allowed it, I would have I would have dunked my head in in the January <laughs> frozen Chicago River. Uh, sadly no, but I did but I did eat heartily of the Chicago dog, uh, and I and I ate heartily of the Chicago deep dish pizza. Um, it was my first time there. It was my first time in Windy City, in the Windy City. So I, I had to do the things, you know. I had to do the, the touristy things. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And then right, so the other, uh, the other kind of part. And, and thank you also for mentioning, like, yes, got home safe. We had like a little bit of snow. Um, I guess now, I guess like now, Chicago's getting like dumped on, and it's you mm-hmm. know mi- minus fifteen. Um, so the, Ooh. so the Society for Classical Studies. People must have made all the right sacrifices to uh, to Zeus to make sure the weather was okay. Because um, remember that polar vortex? Uh, what would that have been? Yeah. Like three years ago now? Yeah, when, yeah, yeah. When that happened, SES was in Chicago. And so people were like, it was a huge like clusterfuck, um, like missing flights. Oh, and, fuck. Yeah, so yeah. people were like, oh, this better not. Bleh, I'm 
I'm mad, but yeah, all's, all's well. But but you also had a bit. I mean, you just recently did some traveling, but and faced much greater difficulties than I had. So I'm also <laughs> glad to hear that you got back safe. Yeah, no, it was cool. Amanda found a super cheap hotel in uh, Pagosa Springs, oh, and yeah. um, it counts. Apparently, Alamosa counts as local, so you can get into the big hot springs complex there for like. No I think all told it cost us 60 bucks for the entire day. Man. So it was great. Friday we fogged out at like 2 o'clock and it was, yeah, this is going to be great. And like we're having fun and like we hit the brewery and we get drunk and it's great. Mm-hmm. And then I, that night I look at my phone and just for fun and I go, oh, hey, there's a winter storm warning on a Sunday. Oh, hey, they're going to get three an inch an hour. Ah, that's all right. It doesn't start until 10. We'll be fine, right? Cut to uh. Saturday. We're all happy. And then it gets real warm. And you know, Josh, you remember what it's like to be warm in winter in the mountains. It's like, oh, there's the warm, and then, oh, there's the high clouds. I'm like, no, it's cool. Noon, wake up on Sunday morning, and there's already eight inches of snow on the ground. The two-hour trip home was actually a four-hour trip, and white knuckle, and I regretted not burning more joints to Zeus. (laughs) Well, yeah, because those are... Right, right, precisely. Yeah, those those are the two that that you'd want. Um, Cause yeah, man, if if you get stuck on the other side of that mountain pass, like you're, that's it. There's there's literally nothing you can do. They drop a huge like barrier across it. Um, so I'm, but yes, all that is to say, um, yeah, Pagosa's great. We went there for Valentine's once. I think similar thing. Um, my Mrs. Wizard found like a pretty cool Airbnb for cheap. I don't know if we got the local rate for the hot springs though. We should have, I don't know, should have investigated that more. But yeah, but uh, did you make it to the lobster pot? That's like one of the hottest ones. Yep. Oh, went baby. to the lobster pot, went to the, what was it, the bird? I think it's 114. Oh, so, man, what I wouldn't And then I give... got out and laid in the frozen-ass river and... Yeah! Yeah, oh. yeah. What I wouldn't give for, like, a natural hot springs here in the Midwest. Man. It's pretty great, so, man. Like So stinking good, right? Oh, boy. Well, yes. It, it, and then, yeah, it seems like both of us had some nice trips to sort of uh, to, to, to christen the new year. And speaking of christening, Mark, we're also mixing it up a bit. Um, I don't know if this is going to be an entire year thing. I don't know if we want to make this a New Year's resolution. But maybe <laughs> maybe at least a new season's resolution, um, which will, I guess, one, we need to come up with a new like naming convention for whatever these things we're drinking. I mean, I have an idea or two. Uh, but also, what are we drinking this time around? Well, so I don't think we actually need a new name, right? We, we were calling this last year, you know, mm-hmm. 2024, we're going to drink beer that doesn't want to kill us. 2024, we're not going to break the bank on booze. 2024, mm-hmm. uh, we're out of, you know, synonyms for cups. Yeah. <laughs> but we kept joking. I kept joking, you know, 2024 to be the year of PBR. And I, text, and I was editing... The other day, and we kept talking about it for our year-end wrap-up part two. Kept joking, your PBR. So I'm calling. I called the bluff this morning, and I'm like, Josh, get some PBR. We're gonna see how long we can stick it out. So instead of saying what's in your wizard's cup, I'm just gonna say, Happy Wizards PBR. Yeah, I think that's good. I, the, the the other one that I was thinking is like, what's in your wizard's can? <laughs> but then again, that also has some weird. That that could have some weird, um, unintended denotations or connotations there. Uh, what happened yes. in Pagosa stayed in Pagosa. <laughs> right, right. Um, so yeah, I guess in honor of the what will be the 131st anniversary of winning the Blue Ribbon 
um, selected as America's Best. <laughs> the original Pabst Blue Ribbon. So here is Anya Buddy. Cheers, good buddy. PBR. That's the stuff. Yeah, so uh, Mrs. Wizard and I, we're, we're actually recording this slightly later than our usual schedule. Um, due, in, due in part because we, um, we need to make a little grocery trip. Including picking up a 30 rack of PBR. And and she looked at me and she was like, really, Josh? I was like, baby, this is this is what we're doing. This is who we are now. <laughs> and I think, because it was, yeah, like 30, yeah, it was like 30 cans for like 21 bucks. Jesus. So that's what, like a uh, dollar, like 20 a beer, something like that. <laughs> No, less than that, right? It's like eighty cents a can, right? Thirty cans for twenty-one bucks. Yeah, or, well, yeah, I guess, I, I guess so. Yeah, shoot. So, <laughs> so which yeah. is you... amazing because I gave thirteen bucks for my twelve pack. So fuck you, state sales tax. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, my boy. granddad always so, drank PBR, yes. and like every my summer or my uncle lives in Illinois. So every summer he'd come out and visit mm-hmm. him, and he'd throw like 60, 30 racks in the truck because they're like eight bucks. Yeah. 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 And in Colorado, they're like 20 bucks, you know, back then. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, and that's even something that we've, we've mentioned too. Like, you know, whatever federal regulation it is that limits the, uh, uh, personal shipment of alcohol across state lines that that's got to go you know so if you know contentious presidential election coming up the candidate who promises to reform (laughs) sending beer to my friends across state lines (laughs) he or she or they get my vote (laughs) at this point if it's not a fucking hunter biden hearing i don't care what you do you got my oh yeah goddamn oh, my vote God. hey you know what i vote for yeah. is to vote for the best once again uh hundred what'd you say 139 years later well we're reading shit that's only about 100 years old tonight um true <laughs> this is uh yeah right from that same one when pbr was only um i don't know like 30 years into its reign as Jesus as america's Christ. best <laughs> uh, but yes, we are, we are, I, I guess you can say we are double dipping. Um, we're doing a little bit of our, of our weird fiction, our pulp fiction, um, giving nods both to H.P. Lovecraft and to Robert E. Howard tonight. So we're doing, I think this is our first, I mean, like, um, I want to say like there was a Halloween episode where we read a whole bunch oh, of different things. But I think yeah, our, our, yeah, our uh, ghost stories one. We read the caterpillars yeah. and um, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but but I think this is our first like weird fiction uh, double feature. If, if memory, if I think memory you're. Serves, yeah, I think but, you're uh, right. Like, well, at least out of the author, because you know we did um, Frost right. Giant's Daughter and Iron Shadows in the Moon well, yes. about this time last year. But yeah, you're right. We're yeah. kind of getting like a sampler plate. And this is cool because the Howard story isn't a Conan. And the Lovecraft isn't actually right. a Lovecraft. And we're going to find that when he when we find out that... It, well, we'll just talk about it when we get there. It's not an actual HP okay. story. It's kind of a little, little bit of sneakiness mm. going on here. But. A little bit of sneakiness going on here. Well, and I guess, I guess I mean, with that note, shall we shall we begin with that one? Shall we start with that one? Yeah, you want to start with uh, The Curse of Yig by old HPL? Let us, let us. Yes, let's. So yes, The Curse of Yig uh, uh, the, the uh, by HP Lovecraft, 
uh, do do I mention that this is for uh, Zelia Bishop? Yeah, Zelia Bishop. Yeah, actually, he wrote it alongside uh, Zelia Bishop. This is he wrote a series Ooh. of stories with this woman. They were what you might call buddies. Um, and he kind of had this story. He, she also wrote another one called Medusa's Coil, which is about a black woman whose hair comes to life and kills people. That's, you know, <clears throat> 1920s. Awesome. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it's not as awesome as I made it sound. It's pretty hard. And also, okay. um, <laughs> hey, we're going to play a game here called Anytime There's a Line That Doesn't Hold Up, We're Going to Drink. And listeners, when you hear this sound, okay. you drink too. And just know that yeah. Mark hears all these things we're saying, but these are two cool stories, and quite frankly, I need some weird fiction. Yeah. So yeah. you will see the marked difference in tone, what with this lady writer, at least ghost writing, as we read The Curse of Yig, Josh. You uh, want to start us off? I would be honored to. In 1925, I went into Oklahoma looking for snake lore. And I came out with a fear of snakes that will last me the rest of my life. Okay, we'll already drink. <laughs> um, I admit it is foolish, since there are natural explanations for everything I saw and heard, but it masters me nonetheless. If the old story had been all there was to it, I would not have been so badly shaken. My work as an American Indian ethnologist has hardened me to all kinds of extravagant legendary. And I know that simple white people can beat the Redskins at their own game when it comes to fanciful intervention, fanciful inventions, Bing, or whatever the sound is going to be. Yep. <laughs> but I can't forget what I saw with my own eyes at the insane asylum in Guthrie. I called it that asylum because a few of the oldest settlers told me I would find something important there. Neither Indians nor white men would discuss the snake god legends I had come to trace. The oil boom newcomers, of course, knew nothing of such matters, and the red men and old pioneers were plainly frightened when I spoke of them. Not more than six or seven people mentioned the asylum, and those who did were careful to talk in whispers. But the whisperers said that Dr. McNeil could show me a very terrible relic and tell me all I wanted to know. He could explain why Yig, the half-human uh, father of serpents, is a shunned and feared objects in central Oklahoma, and why old settlers shiver at the secret Indian orgies which make the autumn days and nights hideous with the ceaseless beating of tom-toms in lonely places. It was with the scent of a hound on the trail that I went to Guthrie, for I had spent many years collecting data on the evolution of serpent worship among the Indians. I had always felt, from a well-defined undertones of legend and archaeology, the great Quetzalcoatl, benign snake god of the Mexicans, had an older and darker prototype. During recent months, I had well-nigh proved, proved it in a series of researches stretching from Guatemala to the Oklahoma Plains. But everything was tantalizing and incomplete, for above the border the cult of the snake was hedged about by fear and furtiveness. Now it appeared that a new and copious source of data was about to dawn, and I sought the head of the asylum with eagerness I did not try to cloak. Dr. McNeil was small, clean-shaven man of somewhat advanced years, and I saw it from his speech and manner that he was a scholar of no mere attainments in many branches outside of his profession. Grave and doubtful, when I first made my errand, or when I first made known my errand, his face grew thoughtful as he carefully scanned my credentials and my letter of introduction, which which a kindly old ex-Indian agent had given to me. 
So, you've been studying the Yig legend, eh? He reflected sententiously. Drink for sententiously. That's a great word. Ooh, that's a, that is a good one. Yep. I know that many of our Oklahoma ethnologists have tried to connect it to Quetzalcoatl, but I don't think that any of them have traced the intermediate steps so well. You've done remarkable for a man as young as you seem to be, and you certainly deserve all the data we can give. I don't suppose old Major Moore or any of the others told you what it is that I have here. They don't like to talk about it, and neither do I. It was very tragic and very horrible, but that is all. I refuse to consider it anything supernatural. There is a story about it, and I'll tell you after you see it. A devilish sad story, but one that I won't call magic. It merely shows the potency that belief has over some people. I'll admit that there are times when I feel a shiver that's more physical, but in daylight, I set that all down to nerves. I'm not a young fellow anymore, alas. To come to the point, the thing I have is what you might call a victim of Yig's curse. A physically living victim. We don't let the bulk of the nurses see it, although most of them know it's here. There are just two steady old chaps whom I let feed it and clean out its quarters. Used to be three, but good old Stevens passed on a few years ago. I suppose I'll have to break in a new group pretty soon, for the thing doesn't seem to age or change much, and we old boys can't last forever. Maybe the ethics of the future will let us give it a merciful release, but it is hard to tell. Did you see that single ground glass basement window over in the east wing when you came up the drive? That's where it is. I'll take you there myself now. You needn't make any comment. Just look through the movable panel on the door and thank God the light isn't any stronger. Then I'll tell you the story. Or as much of it as I've been able to piece together. We walked downstairs very quietly and did not talk as we threaded the corridors of the seemingly deserted basement. Dr. McNeil unlocked a gray painted steel door, but it was only a bulkhead leading to a further stretch of hallway. At length, he paused before a, do a door marked B116, opened a small observation panel, which he could use only by standing on tiptoe, and pounded several times upon the painted metal, as if to arouse the occupant, whatever it might be. A faint stench came from the aperture as the doctor unclosed it, and I fancied his pounding elicited a kind of low hissing response. Finally, he motioned me to replace him at the peephole, and I did so with a, cause, with a causeless and increasing tremor. The barred ground glass window, close to the earth outside, admitted only a feeble and uncertain pallor, and I had to look into the malodorous den for several seconds before I could see what was crawling and wriggling about on the straw-covered floor, emitting every now and then a weak and vacuous hiss. Okay, also real quick, a drink for malodorous. <laughs> Then the shadowed outlines began to take shape, and I perceived that the squirming entity bore some remote resemblance to a human form laid flat on its belly. I clutched at the door handle for support as I tried to keep from fainting. The moving object was almost of human size and entirely devoid of clothing. It was absolutely hairless, and its tawny looking back seemed subtly squamous in the dim ghoulish light. Around the shoulders it was rather speckled and brownish, and the head was very curiously flat. As it looked up to hiss at me, I saw that the beady little black eyes were damnably anthropoid, but I could not bear to study them long. They fastened themselves on me with a horrible persistence, so that I closed the panel graspingly and left the creature to wriggle about unseen in its matted straw and spectral twilight. I must have reeled a bit, for I saw the doctor was gently holding my arm as he guided me away. I was stuttering over and over again. 
But for God's sake, what is it? Dr. McNeil told me the story in his private office as I sprawled opposite him in the easy chair. The golden crimson of late afternoon changed to a violet of early dusk, but still I sat awed and motionless. I resented every ring of the telephone or whir of the buzzer, and I could have cursed the nurses and interns whose knocks now and then summoned the doctor briefly to the outer office. Night came, and I was glad when my host switched on all the lights. Scientist though I was, my zeal for research was half forgotten amidst the breathless ecstasies of fright of a small boy might feel when when whispered witch tales go the rounds of the chimney corner. It seemed that Yig, the snake god, was of the Central Plains tribes. Presumably a primal source of the more southerly Quetzalcoatl or Kolkukan was odd, half-anthropomorphic, half-anthropomorphic devil of highly arbitrary and capricious nature. He was not wholly evil, and was usually quite well disposed towards those who gave proper respect to him and his children, the serpents. But in the autumn he became abnormally ravenous, and had to be driven away by the means of suitable rites. That was why the tom-toms of the Pawnee, Wichita, and Cato country pounded ceaselessly week in and week out in August, September, and October, and why the medicine men made strange noises with rattles and whistled curiously like those of the Aztecs and Mayans. Yig's chief trait was the relentless devotion to his children, a devotion so great that the Redskins almost feared to protect themselves from the venomous rattlesnakes which thronged the reason. Rightfully, clandestine tales hinted upon a vengeance upon, or hinted of his vengeance upon mortals who flouted him or wreaked harm upon his wriggling progeny. Drink for wriggling progeny. Ooh, drink. Yep. His chosen method being to turn his victim after suitable tortures to a spotted snake. In the old days of the Indian territory, the doctor went on, there was not quite so much secrecy about Yig. The plains tribes, less cautious than the desert nomads and pueblos talked quite freely of their legends and autumn ceremonies with the first Indian agents, and let considerable of the lore spread out through the neighboring regions of white settlement. The great fear came in the land rush days of 89, when some ordinary incidents had been rumored, and the rumors sustained, by what seemed to be hideously tangible proofs. Indians said that the new white men did not know how to get on with Yig, and afterward the settlers came to take that theory at face value. Now, no old-timer in Middle Oklahoma, white or red, could be induced to breathe a word about the snake god except in vague hints. Yet, after all, the doctor added with almost needless emphasis, the only truly authenticated horror had been a thing of pitiful tragedy rather than of of bewitchment. It was all very material and cruel, even that last phase which had caused so much dispute. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. I. Yeah. Okay. So. So one. I'm in it. I'm. I'm. I'm digging it. Um. But yes, you can also tell that this isn't. This isn't your Lovecraft. This. This isn't your your uh, your run of the mill Lovecraft mm-hmm. story. Um. So yeah, the the fact that we're not in New England somewhere in some creepy. Four <laughs> hundred year old like like town or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, but we're out in, in the Great Plains. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a pretty big giveaway. Um, haven't seen uh, Cyclopean or Antediluvian yet, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. strike two. <laughs> um, but then you can also see some of the things, right? Like the unnamed uh, narrator who's participating and sort of does the whole like, "You'll, I, I'm so scared, but." 
once you hear my story, you'll know why I'm so scared. Right. That whole beginning thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I am digging it. Yep. I'm digging it. Um, super uncommon trait of a Lovecraft protagonist. Uh, he doesn't faint when he he talks about almost fainting, but he yes. actually stays conscious. So already, mm-hmm. not a Lovecraft yeah. story. <laughs> I can see like uh, writing these letters back and forth, like Howard Phillips being like, "Zelia, baby, darling, honey, love it. Draft is great, um, but you may want to make the protagonist faint." And she just goes, <laughs> "No, <laughs> no." <laughs> Come on, Zelia, make him faint. God, Zelia. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn this Model T back, back to Arkham. <laughs> Zelia, set it in Massachusetts. God. <laughs> and they just stare at each other for long. See, man, why didn't we get that? Key and Peele sketch before they before they ended the show. <laughs> I'd watch the hell out of that. Um, okay, well now I'm also curious. I'm also kind of curious. Like, it, like are are there that many snakes in Oklahoma? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. maybe? Oh yeah, like they've I got guess. those rattlesnake roundups in Texas and Oklahoma, and like, yeah, they're thick okay, out there. I guess water, that's... and then you know you got like the water moccasins out in the swamps and. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I I just found oksnakes.org. So I guess that answered my question. <laughs> oh, I thought it was like a snake dating website like okay cube. Okay, cool. <laughs> that would be awesome. Okay, yig. <laughs> okay, yig. Yayayig.com. <laughs> and then that one like creepy old guy. Hi, welcome to yayayig.com. Our website's been Having hell spawn find each other for thousands of years. <laughs> this will be an everlasting horror. This will be. <laughs> oh, tw- 2024. Off to off to a roaring start here. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's also pretty creepy, though. That like, yeah, this this uh, 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 yig when it's not uh, placated, when it's not appeased, um, like it doesn't drive people mad. It doesn't like just out and out like eat them, mm-hmm. but it like transforms them into like snake snake human things. That's a that's a nice little that's a nice little touch. I like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and and we get the drumming of the tom toms. Um, by the American Indians, mm-hmm. as opposed to the drumming of the like Creole people um, in Louisiana mm-hmm. um, from uh, Call of Cthulhu, right? Yeah, 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 and the yeah uh, statement of Lagrasse, yeah, 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 right, 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 right. So, 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 yeah. Again, you know, you can kind of pick up. You know, it's like, um, um, yeah, maybe it's not from the Lovecraft region of. Um, weird fiction, but it's but it's like sparkling weird horror, uh, <laughs> something like that. Um, uh, right, yeah, young, young man interested in this kind of weird research, and then finds an older mentor who kind of walks him through it. Um, okay, all right. Anyway, well, as we continue, Doctor McNeil paused and cleared his throat before getting down to his special story. 
and I felt a tingling sensation as when the theater curtain rises. Oh, that's cute. That's a good little line. Yeah. That is a good line. The thing had begun when Walker Davis and his wife Audrey left Arkansas to settle in the newly opened public lands in the spring of 1889. And the end had come in the country of the Wichitas, north of the Wichita River, in what is at present Cotto uh, County. There is a small village called Binger there now, and the railway goes through, but otherwise the place is less changed than other parts of Oklahoma. It is still a section of farms and ranches, quite productive in these days, since the great oil fields do not come very close. Walker and Audrey had come from Franklin County in the Ozarks with a canvas-topped wagon, two mules, an ancient and useless dog called a wolf, and all of their household goods. Oh, sweet boy. I, I hope, I sure hope nothing bad happens to wolves. <laughs> right? Right. They were typical hill folk, youngish and perhaps a little more ambitious than most, and looked forward to a life of better returns for their hard work than they had in Arkansas. Both were lean, raw-boned specimens. The man tall, sandy, and gray-eyed, and the woman short and rather dark, with a black straightness of hair suggesting a slight Indian admixture. In general, there was very little of distinction about them, and but for one thing, their annals might not have differed from those of thousands of other pioneers who flocked into the new country at that time. The thing was Walker's almost epileptic fear of snakes, uh, which some laid to prenatal causes, and some said came from a dark prophecy about his end with which an old Indian squaw had tried to scare him when he was small. Whatever the cause, the effect was marked indeed. For despite his strong general courage, the very mention of a snake would cause him to grow faint and pale, while the sight of, uh, of even a tiny specimen would produce a shock sometimes bordering on a convulsion seizure. Pussy. <laughs> the Davises started out early in the year in the hope of being on their new land for the spring plowing. Travel was slow, for the roads were bad in Arkansas. While in the territory, there were still great stretches of rolling hills and red sandy barrens without any roads whatsoever. As the terrain grew flatter, the change from their native mountains depressed them even more, perhaps, than they realized. But they found the people of the Indian agencies very affable, while most of the settled Indians seemed friendly and civil. Now and then they encouraged a fellow pioneer with whom crude pleasantries and expressions of amiable rivalry were generally exchanged. Owning to the season, there were not many snakes in evidence, so Walker did not suffer from his special, <clears throat> his special temperamental weakness. In the early stages of the journey, too, there were no Indian snake legends to trouble him, for the transplanted tribes from the southeast do not share the wilder belief of their western neighbors. As fate would have it, it was a thin white man who gave the Davises their first hint of Yig belief. A hint which had a, curi a curiosity fast. Jesus Christ. Had a curi Oh, curiously. It's not a T, Josh. It's an L. Okay, cool. Had a curiously <laughs> fascinating effect on Walker and caused him to ask questions very freely after that. Before long, Walker's fascination had developed into a bad case of fright. He took the most extraordinary precautions at each of the nightly camps, always clearing away whatever vegetation he found and avoiding stony places wherever he could. Every clump of stunted bush and every cleft in the great slab-like rocks seemed to him now to hide malevolent spirits, while every human figure not obviously part of the settlement or immigrant train seemed to him a potential snake god, till nearness had proved the contrary. 
Fortunately, no troublesome encounters came to him at this stage to shake his nerves still further. As they, as they approached the Kickapoo County, they found it hard and harder to avoid camping near rocks. Finally, it was no longer possible, and poor Walker was reduced into the puerile expedient of droning some rustic anti-snake charms he had learned in his boyhood. Two or three times a snake was rarely glimpsed, and the sights did not help the sufferer in his efforts to preserve his composure. On the 22nd evening of the journey, a savage wind made it imperative for the sake of the mules to camp in as sheltered a spot as possible. And Audrey persuaded her husband to take advantage of a cliff which rose uncommonly high above the dried bed of a former tributary of the Canadian River. He did not like the rocky cast of the place, but allowed himself to be overruled by, uh, to be overruled this once, leading the animals suddenly toward the projecting slope which the nature of the ground would not allow the wagon to approach. Audrey, examining the rocks near the wagon, meanwhile noticed a singular sniffing on the part of the feeble old dog. Seizing a rifle, she followed his lead, and presently thanked her stars that she had forestalled Walker in her discovery. For there, snugly nestled in the gap between two boulders, was a sight uh, it would have done him no good to see. Visible only as one convoluted expanse, but perhaps comprising as many as three or four separate units, was a mass of lazy wriggling, which could not be other than a brood of newborn rattlesnakes. Anxious to save Walker from a trying shock, Audrey did not hesitate to act, but took the gun firmly by the barrel and brought the butt down again and again upon the writhing objects. Her own sense of loathing was great, but it did not amount to a real fear. Finally, she saw that her task was done, and she turned to cleanse the improvised bludgeon in the red sand and dry, dead grass nearby. She must, she reflected, cover the nest up before Walker got back from tethering the mules. Old Wolf, tottering relic of mixed shepherd and coyote ancestry that he was, had vanished, and she feared he had gone to fetch his master. Footsteps at that instant proved her fear well-founded. A second more and Walker had seen everything. Audrey made a move to catch him, if he should faint, but he did no more than sway. Then a look of pure fright in his bloodless face turned slowly into something like mingled awe and anger, and he began to upbraid his wife with trembling tones. God's sake, Odd, but why'd you go do that for... Uh, ain't you heard all the things they've been telling about that snake devil yig? You'd yacht told me and we'd have moved on. Don't you think the devil God was gets you if he hurts his chillin'? What do you think the engines and all the dances and the beats and the drum and the falls about? The land's under a curse, I tell you. Nigh every soul we've ta we've a talked to since we come here is said the same. Yig rules here, and he come out every fall to get his victims and turn them into snakes. Why, odd? They won't. None of them engines across the Jesus Christ. Ain't none of them engines. <laughs> Across the canogen, kill a snake for love of money. God knows what you done to yourself, gal, is stomping on that whole brood of yigs chillin'. He get you sure, sooner or later, unless I can buy a charm off in some of the engine medicine men. He'll get you odd, and as soon as, and as sure as there's a god in heaven, he'll come out of the night and he'll turn you into a crawling spotted snake. Okay, so there, I'm just gonna take a pause there's your fucking lovecraft that's the same bullshit yeah. like amy pierce bullshit that's the same wilbur yeah. watt no i was just gonna say done mm -hmm. which patois yeah jesus that he yeah, thinks yeah, we right. need to write so, like, out phonetically. 
Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the uh, here's the Colorado Space Homesteaders. Um, yeah, kind of going out. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yep, yep. Check. Yep. Check that box too. Um. <laughs> All the rest of the journey, Walker kept up his frightened reproofs and prophecies. They crossed the Canadian near Newcastle, and soon afterward met with the first real Plains Indians they had seen, a party of blanketed Wichitas. Drink? Question mark. I'm gonna say so. Sure. Yeah. Whose leader talked freely under the spell of the whiskey offered him, drink, and taught poor Walker the long-winded protective charm against Yig in exchange for a quart bottle of the same inspiring fluid. Drink, all Indians are drunk. By the end of the week, the chosen site of the Wichita country was reached, and the Davises made haste to trace their boundaries and perform the spring plowing before even beginning to construct or before even beginning the construction of a cabin. The region was flat, drearily windy, sparse of natural vegetation, but promised great fertility under cultivation. Occasionally, outcroppings of granite diversified a soil of decomposed sandstone. Here and there, a great flat rock would stretch along the surface of the ground like a man-made floor. There seemed to be very few snakes, or possible dens for them, and... Excuse me. So Audrey at last persuaded Walker into building a one-room cabin over a vast, smooth slab of exposed stone. With such a, f- with such a flooring and with a good-sized fireplace, the the wettest weather might be defiled. Though it soon became evident that the dampness was no salient quality of the district, logs were hauled in the wagon from the nearest belt of woods and many miles toward the Wichita Mountains. Walker built his wide-chimneyed cabin and crude barn with the aid of some of the other settlers, though the nearest one was over a mile away. In turn, he helped his neighbors at similar house raisings, so that many ties of friendship sprang up between the new neighbors. There was no town worthy the name nearer than El El Reno, on the railway 30 miles or more to the northeast. And before many weeks had passed, the people of the section had become very cohesive despite the wideness of their scattering. The Indians, a few of whom had begun to settle down on ranches, were for the most part harmless, though somewhat quarrelsome when fired by the liquid stimulation which found its way to them despite all government bans. Of all the neighbors, the Davises found Joe and Sally Compton, who likewise hailed from Arkansas, the most helpful and congenial. Sally is still alive, uh, now known as Grandma Compton, and her son Clyde, then an infant in arms, has become one of the leading men of the state. Sally and Audrey used to visit each other often, for the cabins were only two miles apart. And in the long spring and summer afternoons, they exchanged many a tale of old Arkansas and many a rumor about the new country. Sally was very sympathetic about Walker's weakness regarding snakes, but perhaps did more to aggravate than cure the parallel nervousness which Audrey was acquiring through his incessant praying and prophesizing about the curse of Yig. She was uncommonly full of gruesome snake stories and produced a a direfully strong impression with her acknowledged masterpiece, the tale of a man in Scott County who had been bitten by a whole horde of rattlers at once and had swelled so monstrously from poison that his body had finally burst with a pop. Needless to say, Audrey did not repeat this anecdote to her husband, (laughs) uh, and she implored the Comptons to beware of starting it on on the rounds of the countryside. It is to Joe and Sally's credit that they heeded this plea with the utmost fidelity. Walker did his corn planting early, and in midsummer improved er, and in midsummer improved his time by harvesting a fair crop of the native grass in the region. 
With the help of Joe Compton, he dug a well, which gave a moderate supply of very good water, though he planned to sink an artesian later on. He did not run into many ser serious snake scares, and made his land as inhospitable as possible to the wriggling visitors. Every now and then he rode over a cluster of thatched conical huts which formed the main village of the Wichitas, and talked long with the old men and shamans about the snake god and how to nullify his wrath. Charms were always in exchange for whiskey, but much of the information he got was far from reassuring. Yig was a great god. He was bad medicine. He did not forget things. In the autumn, his children were hungry and wild, and Yig was hungry and wild too. All the tribes made medicine against Yig when the corn harvest came. They gave him some corn and danced a proper regalia to the sound of the whistle, rattle, and drum. They kept the drums pounding to drive Yig away and called down aid of Tirawa, whose children men are, even as the snakes are Yig's children. It was bad that the squaw Davis killed the children of Yig. Let Davis say the customs many times when the corn harvest comes. Yig is Yig. Yig is a great god. Bum, bum, oh, bum. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, right, I think as we mentioned, some, some, some things are, are pretty pretty rough by... A little bit, yeah. Um, 2024 standards, even not by 2024 standards, even by like 1994 standards. Yeah, pretty rough. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I also I also like how literally we the, the the only time we talk about Walker talking to Indians, he's giving them whiskey. But then there's the line: yeah. the the local agents try so hard to keep the liquor from them. It's like you're right; <laughs> they're not trying that fucking hard, are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, really not. Um, but um, yeah, and. Uh, but yet, I also appreciate that um, there is this bit of a slow burn, you know? Like, it's not like, boom, and right after she made Mashed Rattlesnake, they were turned into, you know, like, it, it, there's a slow build. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, oh, man, you know, okay, they're, they're, they're making friends. They, they got their, their, their house and their barn raised, and they helped others, too. And it's that slow, ominous building of dread um, until they're, they're going to get it. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And I just hope Old Wolf is hanging in there. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and it is. It is, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but this is like, this is like a weird mix if like, yeah, if like Lovecraft and Howard wrote something about, yeah, like the Great Plains. Yeah, there is there. It's just different, man. It's just it's just a different, different, a different vibe. vibe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, uh, but yeah, no, pretty, pretty, pretty sweet, pretty good. Yeah. Uh, well, and I guess with that, we'll see if Yig is indeed a great god. <laughs> By the time the corn harvest did come, Walker had succeeded in getting his wife into a deplorably jumpy state. His prayers and borrowed incantations came to be a nuisance. And when the autumn rites of the Indians began, there was always a distant, wind-borne pounding of tom-toms to lend an added background of the sinister. It was maddling to have the muffled clatter always stealing over the wide red plains. Why would it ever stop? Day and night, week on week, it was always going on in exhaustless relays, as persistently as the red dusty winds that carried it. 
Audrey loathed it more than her husband did, for he saw in it a compensating element of protection. It was with this sense of a mighty, intangible bulwark against evil that he got in his corn crop and prepared a cabin and stable for the coming winter. The autumn was abnormally warm, and except for their primitive cookery, the Davises found scant use for the stone fireplace Walker had built with such care. Something in the unnaturalness of the hot dust clouds uh, preyed on the nerves of all the settlers, and most of all on Audrey's and Walker's. The notions of a hovering snake curse and the weird, endless rhythm of the distant Indian drums formed a bad combination, which any added element of the bazaar went far to render utterly unendurable. Notwithstanding this strain, several festive gatherings were held at one or another of the cabins after the crops were reaped, keeping naively alive in modernity those curious rites of the harvest home, which are as old as human agriculture itself. Ooh, drink. And listeners, check out our agriculture episode. <laughs> Lafayette Smith, who came from southern Missouri and had a cabin about three miles east of Walker's, was a very passable fiddler, and his tunes did much to make the celebrants forget the monotonous beating of the distant tom-toms. Then Halloween drew near, and the settlers planned another frolic. This time, had they but known it, of a lineage older than even agriculture, the dread witch Sabbath of the, pre- of the primal pre-Aryans, kept alive through ages in the midnight blackness of secret woods and still hinting at vague terrors under its latter-day mask of comedy and lightness. Halloween was to fall on a Thursday, and the neighbors agreed to gather for their first revel at the Davis cabin. It was on the 31st of October that the warm spell broke. The morning was gray and leaden, and by noon the incessant winds had changed from a searingness to a rawness. People shivered all the more because they were not prepared for the chill, and Walker Davis' old dog Wolf dragged himself wearily indoors to place beside the hearth. There you go, Josh. He's doing okay. Okay, doing okay. Good, good. <laughs> but the distant drums still thumped on. Nor were the... Sorry. Nor were the white citizenry less inclined to pursue their chosen rights. Yeah, sorry, that's right. Um, as early as four in the afternoon, the wagons began to awaken to arrive at the walker's cabin. And in the evening, after a memorable barbecue, Lafayette, Smith, Lafayette Smith's fiddle inspired a very fair-sized company to great feats of saltatory, sorry, to great feats of saltatory grotesqueness in the one good-sized but crowded room. The younger folk indulged in amiable inanities proper to the season, and now and then Old Wolf would howl with a doleful spine-tickling ominousness at some especially spectral strain from Lafayette's squeaky violin, a device he had never heard before. Mostly, though, the battered veteran, the battered veteran slept through the merriment, for he was past the age of active interest and, large, and lived largely in his dreams. Tom and Jeannie Rigby brought their collie Zeke along, but the canines did not fraternize. Zeke seemed strangely uneasy over something or, and nosed around curiously all evening. Audrey and Walker made a fine couple on the floor, and Grandma Compton still likes to recall her impression of the dancing that night. Their worries seemed forgotten for the nonce, and Walker was shaved and trimmed into a surprising degree of spruceness. Drink, I like that. <laughs> Excuse me. By ten o'clock, all hands were healthily tired, and the guests began to depart family by family with many handshakings and bluff assurances of what a fine time everybody had. Tom and Jeannie thought Zeke's ear, 
Tom and Jeannie thought Zeke's eerie howls as he followed them from their wagon were marks of regret at having to go home, though Audrey said it must be the faraway tom-toms which annoyed him, for the distant thumping was surely ghastly enough after the merriment within. The night was bitterly cold, and for the first time Walker put a great log in the fireplace and banked it with ashes to keep it smoldering until morning. Old Wolf dragged himself within the ruddy glow and lapsed into his customary coma. Audrey and Walker, too tired to think of charms and curses, tumbled into the rough pine bed and were asleep before the cheap alarm clock on the mantel had ticked out three minutes. And from far away, the rhythmic pounding of the hellish tom-toms still pulsed the chill night wind. Oh, man. Okay, yeah, I mean... Again, themes seem to be going okay. You know, I got the harvest in, have all these parties, have a nice Halloween. Yeah. I mean, sure, like the weather, the weather suddenly gets kind of crappy and uh, cold, but, you know, hey, a, a, a good time was had by all, thanks to um, Lafayette Smith and his and his fiddle. <laughs> I So, we're still pioneering here, right? But also, this is 1925. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Such a weird... Yeah. It's only a hundred years ago, Josh. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, man. Yeah, it's well, it, right. You know, there was that whole big ado uh, that um, Steamboat Willie has now entered the public domain. Right, right, right. And already, there's all sorts of horrible, like horror movies and uh, horror video games. They're like, oh, now it's Steamboat Willie. He's he's gonna get you. Which, like, okay, that's that's just lame, but. Yeah, it's like this whole, this whole like type of storytelling during this time. Um, damn, man. Ooh. They talk about how Audrey gets really sick of hearing the drumming all the time, right? And yeah. my first thought was, here's where it's a Lovecraft story because the white folks show up and they really hate how loud the neighbors are in the, you know, in the neighborhood. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, they did. <laughs> as they're gentrifying it. Oh my, they're so loud. But that, right. yeah, exactly, exactly yeah. right. Just <laughs> setting up shop, claiming their 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 homestead. Yeah, artistic uh. artisanal tacos. Boy, the locals sure are noisy. Um, and also, <laughs> Old Wolf is actually Lovecraft. He doesn't like dancing. He doesn't know what the fuck it means. He's like oh. horrified by the violin. Like this is the second time we see a Lovecraft story with the violin in it, and the violin is like sinister. You know. That's pretty cute. I I like that theory. I like that right. Like that's her. That's her putting him into the. I yeah, I can dig that. Yeah, I, I dig that. that's pretty. I think smart. we're about six years out of his death. So yeah, kind of seems appropriate that he'd be. Well, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. He died way too young. Either way, yeah. you know it. <laughs> also yeah. true. Yeah. Well, and uh, continuing not only with a story but also. Hey, here we are, buddy. There you hey. are. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've just had this Halloween party. Weather's getting kind of right. We, we talked about the weather being bad and having to travel. So good on these people trying to get home mm-hmm. um, before the weather mm-hmm. gets too bad. Um, and uh, yeah, let's see. Let's see what whatever whatever might happen next. Doctor McNeil paused here and moved his glasses, as if a blurring of the objective world might make the reminiscent vision clearer. You'll soon appreciate, he said, 
that I had a great deal of difficulty in piecing out all that happened after the guests left. There were times, though, at first, when I was able to make a try at it. After a moment of silence, he went on with the tale. Audrey had terrible dreams of Yig, who appeared to her in the guise of Satan as depicted in cheap engravings she had seen. It was indeed from an absolute ecstasy of nightmare that she started awake suddenly to find Walker already conscious and sitting up in bed. He seemed to be listening intently to something, and silenced her with a whisper when she began to ask what had roused him. Hark, Odd, he breathed. Don't you hear something a-singing and buzzing and rustling? You reckon it's the fall crickets? Certainly there was distinctly audible within the cabin such a sound as he had described. Audrey tried to analyze it, and was impressed with some element at once horrible and familiar, which hovered just outside the rim of her memory. And beyond it all, waking a hideous thought, the monotonous beating of the distant tom-toms came incessantly across the black plains on which a cloudy half-moon had set. Walker, you suppose it's the, the curse of Yig? She could feel him tremble. Tremble. No, gal, I don't reckon he comes that way. He's shaping like a man, except you look at him close. That's what Chief Gray Eagle says. This here's some varmints come in out, out in the cold. Not crickets, I calculate, but something like that. I order get up and stomp them out before they make such before they make much headway or get at the cupboard. He rose, felt for the lantern that hung within easy reach, and rattled the tin matchbox nailed to the wall beside it. Audrey sat up in bed and watched the flare of the match grow into the steady glow of the lantern. Then, as their eyes began to take in the whole of the room, the crude rafters shook with the frenzy of their simultaneous shriek. For the flat, rocky floor, revealed in the newborn illumination, was now one seething, brown, speckled mass of wriggling rattlesnakes, slithering toward the fire, and even now turning their loathsome heads to menace the fright-blasted lantern-bearer. It was only for an instant that Audrey saw the things. The, reptri the reptiles were of every size, of uncountable numbers, and apparently of several varieties. Even as, she, even as she looked, two or three of them reared their heads as if to strike Walker. She did not faint. It was Walker's crash to the floor that extinguished the lantern and plunged her into darkness. He had not screamed a second time. Fright had paralyzed him, and he fell as if shot by a silent arrow from no mortal's bow. To Audrey, the entire world's world seemed to whirl about fantastically, mingling with the nightmare form which she had started. Voluntary motion of any sort was impossible, for will and the sense of her reality had left her, and she fell back inertly on her pillow, hoping that she would wake soon. No actual sense of what had happened penetrated her mind for some time. Then, little by little, the suspicion that she was really awake began to dawn on her, and she was convulsed with a morning blend of panic and grief which made her long to shriek out, despite the inhibiting spell which kept her mute. Walker was gone, and she had not been able to help him. He had died of snakes, just as the old witch woman had predicted when he was a little boy. Poor Wolf had not been able to help either. Probably, he had not even awakened from his senile stupor, and now the crawling things must be coming for her, writhing closer and closer every minute in the dark, perhaps even now twinning slipperily about the bedposts and oozing up over the coarse woolen blankets. Unconsciously, she crept under the clothes and trembled. It must be the curse of Yig. He had sent his monstrous children on All Hallows' Night, 
and they had taken Walker first. Why was that? Wasn't he innocent enough? Why not come straight for her? Hadn't she killed those little rattlers alone? Then she thought of the curse's form as told by the Indians. She wouldn't be killed, just turned into a spotted snake. Ugh. So, so she would be like those things she had glimpsed on the floor, those things which Yig had sent to get her and enroll her among their number. She tried to mumble a charm that Walker had taught her, but found she could not utter a single sound. The noisy ticking of the alarm clock sounded above the maddening beat of the distant tom-toms. The snakes were taking a long time. Did they mean to delay on purpose to play on her nerves? Every now and then she thought she felt a steady, insidious pressure on the bedclothes, but each time it turned out to be only the automatic twitchings of her overwrought nerves. The clock ticked on in the dark, and a change came slowly over her thoughts. Those snakes couldn't have taken so long. They couldn't be Yig's messengers after all, but just natural rattlers that were nestled below the rocks and had been drawn there by the fire. They weren't coming for her, perhaps. Perhaps they had sated themselves on poor Walker. Where were they go now? Gone? Coiled by the fire? Still crawling over the prone corpse of their victim? The clock ticked, and the distant drums throbbed on. At the thought of her husband's body lying there in the pitch blackness, a thrill of purely physical horror passed over Audrey. That story of Sally Compton's about the man back in Scott County. He too had been bitten by a whole bunch of rattlesnakes. And what had happened to him? The poison had rotted the flesh and swelled the whole corpse. And in the end, the bloated thing had burst horribly. Burst horribly with a detestable popping noise. Was that what was going to happen to Walker down there on the rock floor? Instinctively, she felt she had begun to listen for something too terrible even to name to herself. The clock ticked on, keeping a kind of mocking, sardonic time with the far-off drumming that the night wind brought. She wished it were a striking clock, so that she could know how long the eldritch vigil must last. She cursed the toughness of fiber that kept her from fainting, and wondered what sort of relief the dawn could bring after all. Probably neighbors would pass. No doubt somebody would call. Would they still find her sane? Was she still sane now? Morbidly listening, Audrey all at once became aware of something which she had to verify with every effort of her will before she could believe it, and which, once verified, she did not know whether to welcome or dread. The distant beating of the Indian tom-toms had ceased. They had always maddened her, but had not Walker regarded them as a bulwark against the nameless evil from outside the universe? What were some of those things he had repeated to her in whispers after talking with Grey Eagle and the Wichita Medicine Man? She did not relish, relish this new and sudden silence. After all, there was something sinister about it. The loud, clicking, the loud ticking clock seemed abnormal in its new loneliness, capable at least of a conscious motion. She shook the covers from her face and looked into the darkness toward the window. It must have cleared after the moon had set. She saw the square aperture distinctly against the background of stars. Then, without warning, came that shocking, unutterable sound, the dull, putrid pop of cleft skin and escaping poison into the dark. God! Sally's story, the obscene stench in this gnawing, clawing silence, it was too much. The bonds of mutinous snapped, and the black night waxed reverberant with Audrey's screams of stark, unbridled frenzy. Consciousness did not pass away with the shock. How merciful, if only it had. Ooh, that, that's there's your love craft right there. Yep. 
Amidst the echoes of her shrieking, Audrey still saw the star-sprinkled square of window ahead and heard the doom-boding ticking of that frightful clock. Did she hear another sound? Was that square window still a perfect square? She was in no condition to weigh the evidence of her senses or distinguish between fact and hallucination. No, that window was not a perfect square. Something had encroached on the lower lead edge. Nor was the ticking of the clock the only sound in the room. There was, beyond dispute, a heavy breathing, neither her own nor poor Wolf's. Wolf slept very silently, and his wakeful wheezing was unmistakable. Then Audrey saw against the, st the stars the black, demonic silhouette of something anthropoid, the undulant bulk of a gigantic head and shoulders fumbling slowly toward her. Yah! Yah! Go away! Go away! Go away, snake devil! Go away, Yig! I didn't mean to kill him! I was feared he'd be scared of him! Don't, Yig, don't! I didn't go for to hurt your children! Don't come nigh me! Don't change me into no spotted snake! But the half-formless head and shoulders only lurched onward toward the bed, very silently. Everything snapped at once inside Audrey's head, and in a second she had turned from a cowering child into a raging madwoman. She knew where the axe was, hung against the wall on those pegs near the lantern. It was within easy reach, and she could find it in the dark. Before she was conscious of anything further, it was in her hands, and she was creeping toward the foot of the bed, toward the monstrous head and shoulders that every moment groped their way nearer. Had there been any light, the look on her face would not have been pleasant to see. Take that, you! And that! And that! And that! She was laughing shrilly now, and her cackles mounted higher as she saw that the starlight beyond the window was yielding to the dim, prophetic pallor of coming dawn. Dr. McNeil wiped the perspiration from his forehead and put his glasses on again. I waited for him to resume, and as he kept silent, I spoke softly. She lived. She, she was found. Was it ever explained? The doctor cleared his throat. Yes, she lived, in a way, and it was explained. I told you there was no bewitchment, only cruel, pitiful, material horror. It was Sally Compton who had made the discovery. She had ridden over to the Davis cabin the next afternoon to talk over the party with Audrey, and had seen no smoke in the chimney. That was queer. It had turned very warm again, yet Audrey was usually cooking something at that hour. The mules were making hungry-sounding noises in the barn. There was no sign of Old Wolf, sunning himself in his accustomed spot by the door. Altogether, Sally did not like the look of the place, so she was very timid and hesitant as she dismounted and knocked. She got no answer, but waited some time before trying the crude door of split logs. The lock, it appeared, was unfastened, and she slowly pushed her way in. Then, perceiving what was there, she reeled back, gasped, and clung to the jam to preserve her balance. A terrible odor had welled up out of the door, but that was not what had stunned her. It was what she had seen. For within the shadowy cabin, monstrous things had happened, and three shocking objects remained on the floor to awe and baffled the beholder. Near the burned-out fireplace was the great dog, purple decay on the skin left bare by mange in old age, and the whole carcass burst by the puffing effect of rattlesnake poison. It must have been bitten by a veritable legion of reptiles. To the right of the door, the axe-hacked remnant of what had been a man, clad only in a nightshirt, and the shattered bulk of lantern clutched in his hand. He was totally free of any sign of snakebite. Near him, the ensanguined axe carelessly discarded. 
and wriggling on the floor was a loathsome, vacant-eyed thing that had been a woman, but now only a mute, mad caricature. All that this thing could do was hiss, and hiss, and hiss. Both the doctor and I were brushing cold drops from our foreheads at this time. He poured something into a flask from his desk, took a nip, and then handed another glass to me. I could only suggest, tremendously and stupidly. So Walker had only fainted that first time. The screams roused him and the axe did the rest? Yes, Dr. McNeil's voice was low. But he met his death from snakes just the same. It was his fear working in two ways. It made him faint, and it made him fill his wife with the wild stories that caused her to strike out when she thought she saw the snake devil. I thought for a moment. And Audrey, wasn't it queer how the curse of Yig seemed to work itself out on her? I suppose the impression of hissing snakes had been fairly ground into her. Yes, there were lucid spells at first, but they got to be fewer and fewer. Her hair came white at the roots as it grew, and later began to fall out. The skin grew blotchy, and when she died... I interrupted with a start. Died? Then what was that... that thing downstairs? McNeil spoke gravely. That is what was born to her three quarters of a year afterward. There were three more of them. Two were even worse. But this is the only one that survived. Bomb snake. Bomb, bomb, bomb snakes. <laughs> I'm also okay. Yeah, no, this. Oh man. Okay. Yeah, this is cool. This is really cool. I'm also reminded too of um uh, what was the other Howard one? Dead man's what? Dead man's hate. That's right. Dead man's hate. Where it's like it's not like it's not completely the supernatural thing. It's just all in in their mind. But then this one, it's like, no, but then she also had, like, mutant snake babies. Um. <laughs> yeah, I like how, oh, yes, I can explain everything away with science. By the way, here's a weird half-human snake thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, oh, man. Okay, no, yeah, this this was a good one. And it is. It's sort of like a, okay, see, so yeah, this is like, because, right, part of my, part of what I'm dissertating about is the whole um, adaptation thing. How do you, like, translate a thing? How do you adapt a thing? And this is, this is like, this is like, I think, a great example of, like, Lovecraft-inspired, or, like, like, clearly, like you said, clearly a collaboration with Lovecraft. Um, It's like, it's, yeah, like, hitting a lot of the familiar beats, but also, like, doing some new, doing some new, new things with it, too. Um, And that's awesome. That's super cool. Yeah, I think the biggest one for me is that the uh, protagonist is actually a female, more or less. Right, yeah. It's, it's um, y- yeah, a, a central figure. Um, and, and maybe maybe that's a little bit of like a switcheroo. Like, you think it's going to be about Walker, that like he, he uh, is like the... I, I mean, yes, he is a main character. Um, and it features very prominently in the story, but but it's but yeah, it's 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 Audrey that kind of takes more of the the lead afterwards. She she's the one who who kills all the baby snakes. She's the one who kind of goes crazy. Um, yeah, that's super cool. That's super cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm just trying to think too. Like there was some. I th- there was something else that 
kind of struck me as like kind of Lovecrafty, but now now it's kind of escaping me. Um, I don't know. Any other thoughts? Um, no, I like the story. Yeah, it's a little bit problematic with the depiction of Native Americans, but this is also 1920, and we are still actively in our campaign mm-hmm. to make sure they don't really get treated as humans. So, yeah. all right, I <laughs> well, get it. and also, you know, yeah. Well, and, and also to to um, Zilga's credit too, like the Native Americans. You know, I, I, I could very easily picture in other Lovecraft stories that they would help bring Yig's vengeance um, to, to, to bear, or, or like they would they would help summon him. But like, no, they're trying to keep him away. Like they're they're also uh, protagonists in their own right, right? Uh-huh. They're they like give they they are giving charms um, to Walker to you know to do that too. So so yeah, that's also I think a more nuanced depiction than. Something you might see in in um, other Lovecraft. It's all the mad drumming down in the bayou that's that's helping to raise him because they're part of this 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 cult, right? This, yeah, like secret cult. So so I, I think that's also something that's like refreshingly progressive or as progressive you can get with Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the fact that like it's a woman writer, you know, like. Yeah. And a lot of hay is made out of, like, his uh, sexuality. Like, there's some notes between him and a dude named Samuel Loveman, and, like, we get it, Howard. You're fucking gay for Samuel Loveman. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay, big guy. But this is 1920. Mm -hmm. It wasn't okay. So, like, I do genuinely feel bad for him, but, like, just, you know, long story short, the man didn't like women. He was afraid of women. He was raised by his aunts. Like, he venerated his mother who went crazy, or, you know, who died when he was too young. So, like, just in that is kind of a cool moment. And then I like, too, that the protagonist is largely female, but also she doesn't faint. It even talks shit about, God damn it, I'm such a strong woman that I can't fucking faint. And I'm like, yeah, get him, Zillia. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. It is. It's doing a lot of interesting things with the... Uh, with a with a genre, with a formula, how, however you want to you want to talk about it, but uh, yeah, man, this was cool. Thanks for yeah. thanks for for su- suggesting this to start off the start of our our new year and our new season. Yeah, buddy, That's awesome. And I believe we have time because we're not done yet. We we are we are going to our to our second author now, um, also friend of the show, <laughs> Robert E. Howard, um, and much much shorter. This will be just a little just a little. Little uh, uh, digestif, I suppose <laughs> uh, you could say. So this is uh, "Skulls in the Stars" uh, by Robert E. Howard. He told how murderers walk the earth beneath the curse of Cain, with crimson clouds before their eyes and flames about their brain, for blood has left upon their souls its everlasting stain. There are two roads to Torkertown. Oh my god. <laughs> Torkertown? Torkertown. Drink. I don't even know her town. One, the shorter and more direct route, leads across a barren upland moor. And the other, which is much longer, winds its torturous way in and out among the hummocks and quagmires of the swamps, skirting the low hills to the east. It was a dangerous and tedious trail, so Solomon Kane halted in amazement when a breathless youth from the village he had just left overtook him and implored him for God's sake to take the swamp road. The swamp road? Kane stared at the boy. 
He was a tall, gaunt man, was Solomon Cain. His darkly pallid face and deep, brooding eyes made more somber by the drab, puritanical garb he affected. Yes, sir, tis far safer, the youngster answered to his surprised exclamation. And the Moor Road must be haunted by Satan himself, for your town, for your townsmen warned me against traversing the other. Because of the quagmire, sir, that you might not see in the dark, you'd better return to the village and continue your journey in the morning, sir. Taking the swamp road? Yes, sir. Kane shrugged his shoulders and shook his head. The moon rises almost as soon as twilight dies. By its light, I can reach Torkertown in a few hours across the moor. Sir, you had better not. No one ever goes that way. There are no houses at all upon the moor. While in the swamp, there is the house of old Ezra, who lives alone since his maniac cousin Gideon wandered off and died in the swamp and was never found. And old Ezra, though a miser would not refuse you lodging should you decide to stop until morning, since you must go, you had better go the swamp road. Cain eyed the boy piercingly. The lad squirmed and shuffled his feet. Since this moor road is so dour to wayfarers, said the Puritan, why did not the villagers tell me the whole tale instead of vague mouthings? Men did not like to talk of it, sir. We had hoped that you would take the swamp road after the men advised you to, but when we watched and saw that you turned not for the forks, they sent me to run after you and beg you to reconsider. Name of the devil, exclaimed Came sharply, the unaccustomed oath showing his irritation. The swamp road and the moor road. What is it that threatens me, and why should I go miles out of my way and risk the bogs and mires? Sir said the boy, dropping his voice and drawing closer. We be simple villagers, who like not to talk of such things, lest foul fortune befall us. But the moor road is a way accursed, and hath not been traversed by any of the countryside for more than a year. It is death to walk those moors by night, as hath been found by some score of unfortunates. Some foul horror haunts the ways and claims men for his victims. So? And what is this thing like? No man knows. No one has ever seen it and lived. But late farers have heard terrible laughter far out in the fen, and men have heard horrid shrieks of its victims. Sir, in God's name return to the village. There pass the night, and tomorrow take the swamp trail to Torkertown. Far back in Cain's gloomy eyes, a scintillant light had begun to glimmer, like a witch's torch glinting other fathoms of cold gray ice. His blood quickened. Adventure! The lure of life risk and battle, the thrill of breathtaking touch-and-go drama. Not that Cain recognized his sensations as such. He sincerely considered that he voiced his real feelings when he said, These things be deeds of some power of evil. The lords of darkness have laid a curse upon the country. A strong man is needed to combat Satan and his might. Therefore I go, who have defied him many a time. Sir! The boy began, then closed his mouth as he saw the futility of his argument. He only added, The corpses of the victims are bruised and torn, sir. He stood there at the crossroad, sighing sighing regretfully as he watched the tall, rangy figure swinging up the road that led toward the moors. Oh, okay, all right. I'm already in. I'm in this, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so so this new character, right, Uh we've discussed... Uh, Robert E. Howard, best known, most known for uh, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the the Sumerian, uh, but the Solomon Kane guy, 
um, Puritan demon hunter? Is that, like, it, pretty much? Mm, yeah, sort of. I'll be honest, I don't read a lot of Solomon Kane. I like these shorter stories. But, okay. like, he's kind of hard to piece together. He's either in, like, colonial Africa or, like, colonial America or mm. somewhere. He, It's weird because there's stories of him, like, in the jungle, but then there's stories of him, like, dicking around, like, yeah, in like America. Here in the, so. Yeah, the, the, the swamps and the bogs and the quagmires. Yeah, yeah. I think I've... I've maintained uh, for a long time that, like, the colonial period is a vastly underutilized setting um, for, uh, for, for, yeah, like, the like stories and movies and stuff. We, we need more, we need more colonial, like, colonial America um, specifically, but, because um, there was the one, there was, like, oh, oh, man, this is probably, like, 15 years ago now. There was, like, a, I want to say, like, a werewolf kind of movie, like, kind of set in colonial America, oh, shit. something like that. Uh, okay. Yeah, and that was. Uh, I can't remember the title. I'll have to look it up. God, that um, sounds right yeah, up my alley. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> hell yeah! Give me like, give me my tricorner hat and my um, uh, Kentucky long rifle. Let's go hunt some some werewolves. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay, all right. No, that, that that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, well, then I guess yeah, for both of us, we'll, we'll kind of discover more about this character. The sun was setting as Cain came over the brow of the low hill which debouched into the upland fen. Huge and blood red, it sank down behind the sullen horizon of the moors, seeming to touch the rank grass with fire. So for a moment, the watcher seemed to be gazing out across a sea of blood. Then the dark shadows came gliding from the east, the western blaze faded, and Solomon Cain struck out boldly in the gathering darkness. The road was dim from disuse, uh, but was clearly defined. Kane went swiftly but warily, sword and pistols at hand. Hell yeah. <laughs> Stars blinked out and night winds whispered among the grass like weeping specters. The moon began to rise, lean and haggard, like a skull among the stars. Dream! <laughs> then suddenly Kane stopped short. From somewhere in front of him sounded a strange and eerie echo, or something like an echo. Again, this time louder, Cain started forward again. Were his senses deceiving him? No. Far out, there pealed a whisper of frightful laughter. And again, closer this time. No human being ever laughed like that. There was no mirth in it, only hatred and horror and soul-destroying terror. Cain halted. He was not afraid, but for the second he was almost unnerved. Then stabbing through that awesome laughter came the sound of a scream that was undoubtedly human. Cain started forward, increasing his gait. He cursed the elusive lights and flickering shadows which veiled the moor in the rising moon and made accurate sight impossible. The laughter continued, growing louder, as did the screams. Then sounded faintly the drum of frantic human feet. Cain broke into a run. Some human was being, sorry, some human was being hunted to death out there on the fen, and by what manner of horror God only knew. The sound of flying feet halted abruptly, and the screaming rose unbearably mingled with other sounds, unnameable and hideous. Evidently, the man had been overtaken, and Cain, his flesh crawling, visualized some ghastly fiend of darkness crouching on the back of its victim, crouching and tearing. 
The noise of a terrible and short struggle came clearly through the abyssal silence of the night, and the footfalls began again, stumbling and uneven. The screaming continued, but with a grasping gurgle. The sweat stood cold on Cain's forehead and body. This was heaping horror on horror in an intolerable manner. Drink. I like that. Yep, yep. Very pure, intolerable manner of horror upon horror. <laughs> God, but for a moment's clear light. The frightful drama was being enacted with a very short distance of him, to judge by the ease with which the sounds reached him, but this hellish half-light veiled in all in shifting shadows, so that the moors appeared a haze of blurred illusions, and stunted trees and bushes seemed like giants. Cain shouted, striving to increase the speed of his advance. The shrieks of the unknown broke into hideous, shrill squealing. Again, there was no sound, or there was a sound of a struggle, and then... From the shadows of the tall grass came reeling a thing that had once been a man, a gore-covered, frightful thing that fell at Cain's feet, and writhed and groveled and raised its terrible face to the rising moon, and gibbered and yammered and fell down again and died in its own blood. The moon was up now, and the light was better. Cain bent over the body, which lay stark in its unnameable mutilation, and he shuddered, a rare thing for him who had seen the deeds of the Spanish Inquisition and the Witchfinders. Okay, treat for that too. <laughs> All right. So fucking cool. <clears throat> so good. Some wayfarer, he supposed. Then like a hand of ice on his spine, he was aware that he was not alone. He looked up, his cold eyes piercing the shadows whence the dead man had staggered. He saw nothing, but he knew, he felt, that other eyes gave back his stare. Terrible eyes, not of this earth. He straightened and drew a pistol, waiting. The moonlight spread like a lake of pale blood over the moor, and trees and grasses took on their proper sizes. The shadows melted, and Cain saw. At first he thought it was only a shadow of mist, a wisp of, of moor fog that swayed in the tall grass before him. He gazed. More illusion, he thought. Then the thing began to take on shape, vague and indistinct. Two hideous eyes flamed at him, eyes which held all the stark horror which has been the heritage of man since the fearful dawn ages, eyes frightful and insane, with an insanity transcending earthly insanity. Oh, man. Okay. I'm going to have to <laughs> take a break and get more PBR. Man, there's some bangers in here. The form of the thing was misty and vague, a brain-shattering travesty on the human form, like yet horridly unlike. The grass and bushes beyond showed clearly through it. Cain felt the blood pound in his temples, yet he was as cold as ice. How such an unstable being as that which wavered before him could harm a man in a physical way was more than he could understand. Yet the red horror at his feet gave mute testimony that the fiend could act with terrible material effect. Of one thing Cain was sure, there would be no hunting of him across the dreary moors, no screaming and fleeing to be dragged down again and again. If he must die, he would die in his tracks, his wounds in front. Drink! Oh, man, so good. Sorry, that die in his tracks, the wounds in front. Ooh, that's fucking mm -hmm. good. Yep. Now a vague and grisly mouth gaped wide, and the demonic laughter again shrieked out, soul shaking in its nearness. And in the midst of that threat of doom, Cain deliberately leveled his long pistol and fired. 
A mechanical yell of rage and mockery answered the report, and the thing came at him like a flying sheet of smoke, long, shadowy arms stretched to drag him down. Cave moved, Kane moved with dynamic speed of a famished wolf, fired the second pistol with as little effect, snatched his long rapier from its sheath, and thrust into the center of the misty attacker. The blade sang as it passed clear through, encountering no solid resistance. Kane felt icy fingers grip his limbs, bestial talons tear his garments and the skin beneath. He dropped his useless sword and sought to grapple with the foe. It was like fighting a floating mist, a flying shadow armed with dagger-like claws. His savage blows met empty air. His lean... His... Oh, sorry. His leanly... <clears throat> his leanly mighty arms, in whose grasp strong men had died, swept nothingness and clutched emptiness. Not was solid or real, save the flaying ape-like fingers with their own crooked talons, and the crazy eyes which burned into the shuddering depths of his soul. Cain realized that he was in a desperate plight indeed. Already his garments hung in tatters, and he bled from a score of deep wounds. But he never flinched, and the thought of flight had never entered his mind. He never fled from a single foe, and had, thought, and had the thought occurred to him, he would have flushed with a, with a shame. He saw no help for it now, but that his form should lie there beside the fragments of the other victim. But the thought held no terrors for him. His only wish was to give as good an account of himself as possible before the end came, and if he could, to inflict some damage on his unearthly foe. There above the dead man's torn body, man fought with demon under the pale light of the rising moon, with all the, with all the advantages which the with the demon save one and that one was enough to overcome all the others. For if abstract hate may bring into material substance a, ga a ghostly thing, may not courage, equally abstract, form a concrete weapon to combat that ghost? Cain fought with his arms and his feet and his hands, and he was aware that at last the ghost began to give back before him, that the fearful laughter changed to screams of baffled fury. For man's only weapon is courage that flinches not from the gates of hell itself, and against such not even the legions of hell can stand. Of this Cain knew nothing. He only knew that the challenge which tore and rended him seemed to grow weaker and wavering, that a wild light grew and grew in the horrible eyes. And reeling and gasping, he rushed in, grappled the thing at last, and threw it. And as they tumbled about on the moor, and it writhed and lapped his limbs like a serpent of smoke, his flesh crawled and his hair stood on end, for he began to understand its gibbering. He did not hear and comprehend as a man hears and comprehends the speech of a man, but the frightful secrets it imparted in whisperings and yammerings and screaming silences sank fingers of ice and flame into his soul, and he knew. Oh, okay. All right. So we've read, you know, a handful of Conan stories by now, uh -huh. right? And talking about, you know, uh, New Year's resolutions and working out. And I know that I will never have Conan physique. I, I, right. I, I, I just know that. I think I can strive for Solomon Kane physique because he talks, they, they talk about him being this. You know, tall, skinny, but like crazy strong. That's 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 my goal. That's my that's my right. Like not Conan poster or like Arnold po poster, but I'll find a good illustration of Solomon Kane 
uh, take it down to a print shop <laughs> and hang that in the basement as I start lifting again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like got to manifest it. Hell yeah, dude. Ah, oh, God, this is so good. Oh, this is so stinking good. <laughs> I just, man, he, Howard is just such a good writer, man. Like he is. I mean, right? Like, how many times do we have to stop and drink it? Is it is uh, prose there? Ooh. Oh shit! What was the? I gotta go back and find it. Uh, keeping horror on horror in an intoler- in, in an intolerable manner. That was a good one. Two hideous eyes flamed at him, eyes which held all the stark horror which had been the heritage of man since the fearful dawn ages, eyes frightful and insane, with an insanity transcending earthly insanity. The form of the thing was misty and vague, a brain-shattering travesty on the human form, yet like, yet horribly unlike. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, oh, it's so good. If that doesn't, I'm sorry. Like, I know how when we do these, we always kind of tend to skew more towards Howard because he's easier than Lovecraft. And, like, he's just not as racist and he's not as problematic. It's just easier right. to digest. Right. Yeah. But, like, right yeah. there, I'm sorry, dude. That is him just, like, taking his, you know, line of, like, horror of the unknown and just, like, slapping in the face and saying, I can do better. It's, yeah, it's a travesty. Right. That's what, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not mockery of God. It's, like, the depression of God. Like, how bad can God yeah. get so fucking good? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. Never be. Never be. Because, yeah, this is this is awesome. This is awesome. Yeah, it's it's reminded me, too. I, I've seen Let's Plays of this. I haven't picked it up myself. But there's sort of like a... It's like a 2D, kind of like Dark Souls-esque game um, called Blasphemous. Okay. And it's, and it's like kind of like it's not... Like it's not Catholic. But it's sort of like a like alternate world version of like Catholicism, and it is. It's just like dreary and horrible, and people are just suffering. Um, but like that's the point. I'm like getting similar. And okay, yes, I understand that Solomon Cain's like Puritan, so he would right. he would say like, no, those guys are, are messing it up here. But I'm getting a lot of those vibes uh, from from reading the story. Um, super super good. Uh, well, okay, all right. Well, hey, we're we're already halfway through because uh, that was chapter one, and it looks like there's only chapter two or, or part one and part two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I guess let us let us continue. The hut of old Ezra the miser stood by the road in the midst of the swamp, half screened by the sullen trees which grew about it. The walls were rotting, the roof crumbling, and great pallid and pallid and green fungus monsters clung to it and withered about the doors and windows as if seeking to peer within the trees leaned above it and their gray branches intertwined so that it crouched in a semi-darkness like a monstrous dwarf over whose shoulders ogres leered god damn it drink man again tell your silly scary fucking house howard way to fucking go dog yeah right (laughs) This is my swamp house. (laughs) (laughs) It's all ogre, Kane. Um, (laughs) The road which wound down the swamp among rotting stumps and rank hummocks and scummy snake-haunted pools and bogs crawled past the hut. Many people passed that way these days, but few saw old Ezra, save the glimpse of a yellow face peering through the fungus-screened windows itself like an ugly fungus. Old Ezra, the miser, partook much of the quality of the swamp, for he was gnarled and bent and sullen. His fingers were like clutching parasitic plants, and the and his locks hung like drab moss above his eyes, tucked into the murk of the swamplands. 
His eyes were like a dead man's, yet hinted with depths of abysmal and loathsome as dead lakes of, sw of the swamplands. These eyes gleamed now at the man who stood in front of his hunt. Uh, sorry, the man who stood in front of his hut. This man was tall and gaunt and dark. His face was haggard and claw marked, and he was bandaged of arm and leg. Somewhat behind the men stood a number of villagers. You are Ezra of the Swamp Road. Hi, and what you want of me? Where is your cousin Gideon, the maniac youth who abode with you? Gideon. Hi. He wandered away into the swamp and never came back. No doubt he lost his way and was set upon by wolves or died in a quagmire or was struck by an adder. How long ago? Over a year. Aye. Hark ye, Ezra the Miser. Soon after your cousin's disappearance, a countryman coming home across the moors was set upon by some unknown fiend and torn to pieces, and thereafter it became death to cross these moors. First men of the countryside, then strangers who wandered over the fen, fell to the clutches of the thing. Many men have died since the first one. Last night I crossed the moors and heard the flight and pursuing of another victim, a stranger who knew not the evil of the moors. Ezra the miser, it was a fearful thing, for the wretch twice broke from the fiend, terribly wounded, and each time the demon caught and dragged him down again. And at last he fell dead at my very feet, done to death in a manner that would freeze the statue of a saint. The villagers move, moved restlessly and murmured fearfully to each other, and old Ezra's eyes shifted furtively. Yet the somber expression of Solomon Cain never altered, and his condor-like stare seemed to transfix the miser. Aye, aye, muttered old Ezra hurriedly. A bad thing, a bad thing, yet why do you tell me, tell this thing to me? Aye, a sad thing. Hearken further, Ezra. The fiend came out of the shadows, and I fought with it over the body of its victim. Aye, how I overcame it I know not, for the battle was long and hard, but the powers of good and light were on my side, which are mightier than the powers of hell. At the last I was stronger, and it broke from me and fled, and I followed to no avail. Yet before it fled it whispered to me a monstrous truth. Old Ezra started, stared wildly, and seemed to shrink into himself. Nay, why tell me this, he muttered. I returned to the village and told my tale, said Cain, for I knew that now I had the power to rid the moors of its curse forever. Ezra, come with me. Where? gasped the miser. To the rotting oak on the moors. Ezra reeled as though struck. He screamed incoherently and turned to flee. On the instant, at Cain's sharp order, two brawny villagers sprang forward and seized the miser. They twisted the dagger from his withered hand and pinioned his arms, shuddering as their fingers encountered his clammy flesh. Cain motioned them to follow, and turning, strode up the trail, followed by the villagers, who found their strength taxed to the utmost in their task of bearing their prisoner along. Through the swamp they went and out, taking a little-used trail which led up over the low hills and out on the moors. The sun was sliding down the horizon, and old Ezra stared at it with bulging eyes, stared as if he could not gaze enough. Far out on the moors reared up the great oak tree, like a gibbet, now only a decaying shell. There Solomon Cain halted. Old Ezra writhed in his captor's grasp and made inarticulate noises. 
Over a year ago, said Solomon Cain, you, fearing that your insane cousin Gideon would tell men of your cruelties to him, brought him away from the swamp by the very trail by which we came, and murdered him here in the night. Ezra cringed and snarled. You cannot prove this lie. Cain spoke a few words to an agile villager. The youth clambered up the rotting bowl of the tree and from a crevice high up dragged something that fell with a clatter at the feet of the miser. Ezra went limp with a terrible shriek. The object was a man's skeleton. The skull cleft. You... how knew you this? You are Satan, gibbered old Ezra. Cain folded his arms. The thing I fought last night told me this thing as we reeled in battle, and I followed it to this tree. For the fiend is Gideon's ghost. Ezra shrieked again and fought savagely. You knew, said Cain somberly. You knew that thing that... You, you knew what thing did these deeds. You feared the ghost of the maniac, and that is why you chose to leave his body on the fen instead of concealing it in the swamp. For you knew the ghost would haunt the place of his death. He was insane in life, and in death he did not know where to find his slayer, else he had come to you in your hut. He hates no man but you, but his mazed spirit cannot tell one man from another, and he slays all, lest he let his killer escape. Yet he will know you and rest in peace forever after. Hate hath made of his ghost a solid thing that can rend and slay, and though he feared you terribly in life, in death he fears you not. Cain halted. He glanced at the sun. All this I had from Gideon's ghost, in his yammerings and whisp in his whisperings and his shrieking silences. Not but your death will lay that ghost. Ezra listened in breathless silence, and Cain pronounced the words of his doom. A hard thing it is, said Cain somberly, to sentence a man to death in cold blood and in such a manner as I have in mind, but you must die that others may live, and God knoweth you deserve death. You shall not die by noose, bullet, or sword, but at the talons of him you slew, for naught else will satiate him. At these words, Ezra's brain shattered. His knees gave way and he fell groveling and screaming for death, begging them to burn him at the stake to flay him alive. Cain's face was set like death, and the villagers, with fear rousing their cruelty, bound the screeching wretch to the oak tree, and one of them bade him make his peace with God. But Ezra made no answer, shrieking in a high, shrill voice with unbearable monotony. Then the village would have struck the miser across the face, but Cain stayed him. Let him make peace with Satan, whom he is more like to meet, said the, grim, said, said the Puritan grimly. The sun is about to set. Loose his cords so, so that he may work loose by dark, since it is better to meet death free and unshackled than bound like a sacrifice. Drink. Drink. As they turned to leave him, old Ezra yammered and gibbered unhuman sounds and fell silent, staring at the sun with terrible intensity. They walked away from the fen. Cain flung a last look to the grotesque form behind the tree, seeming in uncertain light like a great fungus growing to the bowl, and suddenly the miser screamed hideously, Death! Death! There are skulls in the stars! Life was good to him, though he was gnarled and churlish and evil, Cain sighed. 
Mayhap God has a place for so such souls where fire and sacrifice may cleanse them of their dross as fire cleanses the forest of fungus things. Yet my heart is heavy with me. Nay, sir, one of the villagers spoke. You have done but the will of God, and good alone shall come of this night's deed. Nay, answered Cain heavily. I know not. I know not. The sun had gone down, and night spread with amazing swiftness, and as if great shadows rushing from unknown voids to cloak the world with hurrying darkness. Through the thick night came a weird echo. The men halted and looked back the way they came. Nothing could be seen. The moor was an ocean of shadow, and the tall grass about them bent in long waves before the faint wind, breaking with deathly stillness with breathless murmurings. Then, far away, the red disk of the moon rose over the fen, and for an instant a grim silhouette was etched blackly against it. A shape came flying across the face of the moon, a bent grotesque thing, whose feet seemed scarcely to touch the earth, and close behind came a thing like a flying shadow, a nameless, shapeless horror. A moment the racing twain stood out boldly against the moon. Then they merged into one unnameable, formless mass and vanished into the shadows. Far across the fen, a single shriek of terrible laughter. Solomon Kane! <laughs> yeah, man. Whew, this was good. So um, good, yeah. I, yeah, I really enjoyed this, man. And yeah, I guess, I guess we'll have to look for more... Solomon Kane. I, I don't know if they're all as short as this one, or or hopefully not not like crazy crazy long. Um, but uh, yeah, when I when I was trying to find when I was trying to find this, I found like an entire like anthology of Solomon Kane stuff. I don't know if like how much of it is um, Howard or like other writers picking up after him, but uh, yeah, shoot, he wrote man. a fair amount. Um, there's a couple of these. Uh, there's one that's like the Wings of Death, I think, or something like that. Like that's a, it's a little bit longer, but I I mm -hmm. think we could cover that in the future. I just kind of wanted to see what you thought of Solomon Kane, but shit, I think that the experiment worked out, and you're kind of into yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I am sold. Um, because it is, you know, it's it, it's that. I mean, number one, like tall, tall, skinny uh, protagonist, check. And yeah, like like what we were talking about with um with uh, some of the other Howard stuff, like clearly defined good guys, clearly defined bad guys. And that's, that's almost a ref ref refreshing simplicity in a way. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, man, this is great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed both of our uh, selections tonight. So thank you, Mark, for bringing them to my attention. Um, right on, man. I'm glad. And, I'm glad. And, and listeners, tell us, like, do you want more Solomon Kane? Um, did you want us to, I mean, okay, sure, as, as maybe rough as Medusa's coil might be, I mean, we talked about it. Do you, do you want it? Do you want us to, to give that a shot too? <laughs> no, it's just not good. <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. Or do you want, like, other weird fiction, you know? Because that's what we were talking about in some of our retrospectives about, you know, we've more or less run the gamut of, like, what can feasibly fit into this podcast of uh, Lovecraft. But there's, man, there's a whole bunch of other stuff out there. So so let us know. We always love hearing from you. Um, uh, tell us what you think. Uh, and and we will and we will incorporate your feedback as we enter this new year and new season. So send an email to twowizardspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are active. Um, 
You can find us on Twitter at Two Wizards Pod C One. Find us over on Blue Sky uh, under the High Hammock Radio handle. Myself, I, I I am I'm I'm sort of again winding down parts of my social media at least until a little bit uh, post dissertation stuff. Then I you know you might see me a little bit more there. Um, but you can find me at Plaid Barbarian. Uh, Mark, we got a whole bunch of other things going on. A, a whole new year for for other um, uh, products under the uh, uh, High Hammock Radio banner. What are some of those? Um, you can find this and other shows like it at High Hammock Radio. Um, those other shows might be the Dangle Podcast, um, which is a quickly dying out, rounding out, finishing up weekly retrospective of Mike Judge's uh, King of the Hill where we watch episodes and talk about them. Or you can find me, at, and sometimes Josh, over at the I Can't Wait to Show My Kids podcast, a weekly cinematic review show where me and our buddy Brad, uh, we fill in gaps in our cinematic knowledge. The, we are firmly cemented in our John Carpenter miniseries and just love and life. Also, point of order here. So, Curse of Yig, I flag six drinks as being cool drink lines. Okay. And then I flagged 10 as being racist. <laughs> so that's 16. And then Skulls in the Stars, I got 10 cool lines. And fucking, there was no badness in there at all, because Solomon Kane yeah. is awesome. And yeah. God, I'm so looking forward to reading more of him. Listeners, I really hope you liked him. How do you feel that the idea that, like, Krom was a broody and glooming god that fueled Conan, and God is a gloomy and brooding god that fuels the Puritan Solomon Cain and is powered being creative and writing new shit or just switching time periods. I don't fucking care. Give me Conan with a shotgun is my point. But yeah. still, um, let us know. Uh, find me Marky Stardust on Twitter. I'm not there because Twitter sucks. Um, mm. Fuck Twitter. But moving into the future, here we are, Josh, with this one. Season 8, Episode 1 of Two Wizards. Um, again, find us at anything or find this and anything associated with us at High Hammock Radio. That is where you can find my face and Josh's face, but there really are voices uh, saying you know, don't stomp on snakes, kid. Oh, fucking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep your uh, keep your your tom toms and your Bible close by, um, and then you should you, you should be covered for like a, a, a lot. You should that should get you through a lot of a lot of hardship. So uh, so what you're saying, if I'm understanding you right, mm-hmm. that tom toms and the Bible are very close to a Michael Jackson song, and that you need to beat them both. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's a perfect place to end. Uh, Thank you, Mark. Thank you, listeners. Uh, My name is Josh, and I'm a wizard. And my name is Mark, and I'm a wizard. Thank you for listening, guys. We love you all, everyone. Take care. Good night. He rolled upon his back, and after that, I killed them all! Ah!